0: You're listening to Senior Times podcasts. Thanks to our sponsors, Expressway Travel Department and Doro Phones for making this podcast possible.
1: Marie Agersfalt, You're welcome to my first series of Senior Times podcasts. Now, it's often been said that we are a nation of storytellers. I believe that to be true, and I am hugely impressed by the number and the quality of women who write in this country. My guest on this podcast is former president Mary McAleese. And Mary is somebody that you might not immediately think of as a writer, but she has published five books already. And her memoir, Here's the Story, is in bookshops this month. So, Foyt uh, Rose, Mary. <laughs> now, they say that when you retire, you should have a plan. You finished your second term in the presidency in 2011. And my goodness, you had some plan. You were off almost straight away to, to Rome. And also you moved to live in Roscommon. That's right.
2: And it's the first time in my life I think I did have a plan. <laughs> because if you, you know, people I listen to young people now who talk about having career plans. I, I never had one of those until I became president. And then clearly I had a seven-year plan. And then I had a second seven-year plan. But coming to the end of it, um, I realised... Um, that this was a time to make a plan for my retirement. And the first thing, of course, was um, to say what what, what what did I want to do with the rest of my, 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 my life, in a sense, uh, whatever was left to me. And I've always had this interest in the church that um, I was baptised into as a child and grew up in the Catholic Church. I've always had an interest in law somebody suggested why don't you try Rome and that I thought oh I'd always loved always have wanted to live in Rome it's nice my location. you know I love, I love mm. Rome and I thought yeah that would be okay and I was persuaded that having Spanish I have no Italian of course um, um, apart from apart from pizza and you know and <laughs> Cagia <gelida laughs> Manina you. you know and uh, Nessun Dorma mm-hmm. um, that's about the height of it and so I was persuaded by enthusiasts and optimists that the Spanish would help me and that I would eventually get used to the Italian because the courses are taught through Italian uh, in Um, the the Gregorian University where I eventually went. So off I went. I learned Italian, uh, got myself
1: ready um, and uh, off I went pretty much immediately after leaving office. Now that was a courageous step because to go from being president of your country for 14 years and then literally to go back into a classroom. It was brilliant. Uh, I was in my flat
2: shoes, uh, no (laughs) high heels. Oh, the miracle of it, and um, you know, in jeans and a back, a little black backpack uh, that became my little friend and still is, um, and be wandering up and down. You know, I lived beside the Colosseum in a in a monastery, um, uh, in a mixed community um, of. Um, Jews and Muslims and Orthodox Christians and Eastern Catholics and um, Dervishes and you name it. I lived mm. in this wonderful mixed community attached to a monastery um, It's called the Lay Center, um, just right beside the Colosseum. What a privilege to live there! Ice cream and pizza, pizza. and lovely red wine. I just loved it. I've become a student again. I, I, I think was is a. Th- I, th- I think student life is wonderful, apart from the exams. But but it's wonderful.
1: Well, I want to ask you about those studies in Rome, and um, because this is about women who write, I just want to read something. It's re- it's relevant to your career choice, but it's written in your words. So I'll read it. On the day I spoke out loud, my desire to be a lawyer, the first to say you can't because you're a woman you can't because no one belonging to you is in the law, was the Dublin-born parish priest who weekly shared a whiskey or three with my father. It was said with the kind of dismissive authority which is intended to silence protest or debate. My mother had inculcated into us a respect for the priesthood bordering on awe. I watched, therefore, in amazement as the chair was pulled from under the cleric and he was propelled to the front door before the bottle of baby power had been uncorked. You, out, she roared at him. And you, she said to me, ignore him. That was the only advice I ever received from either parent on the subject of career choice. Now, Mary, apart from that being very revealing, and we will delve into that in a little while, it's also very funny. Did did you ever think of maybe, you know, uh, embarking on... uh, Fiction or novels or things like that. You have a wonderful. Everybody fantasizes about it, but I've never done it. Uh, Though I have to say,
2: over the years, I uh, when as particularly in my teens and and early um, uh, my my early years as a teenager, young adolescent, um, when um, something particularly appealed to me or drove me mad, um, I would write. I always kept a diary. I often kept that diary in poetry, um, often kept it in limericks, uh, which were. Wicked and completely unpublishable and probably highly defamatory and libelous and um, so I I I, I would um, I would write a lot but never for publication mm-hmm. I had one I had one short story published in you know in is it New Irish Writing in yes. the in the Independent mm-hmm. once upon a time, Sunday Independent mm-hmm. once upon a time but I never thought of myself um, I never really thought of myself as a writer the first book I ever wrote funnily enough was when I was uh, I think about eight or nine in school and it was come you know, uh, Nowadays, I'd be up, you know, for um, for copying uh, the famous five <laughs> um, because it was a direct cog, um, and because I loved all those books, and so I wrote my own, oh. and um, in Mrs. Lynch's class, I guess I was about nine. And uh, But nobody ever said in those days to consider yourself as a writer. Writers were always other people out there in the same way that lawyers were other, always other people. Priests were always other people. These were places you didn't go. Mm-hmm. And so it never really occurred to me um, that I could make my life as, or living as a writer. Um, maybe it's just as well. Um, I probably
1: would have failed miserably. This is fabulous, this piece that I have oh, just read. It's you? just so uh, revealing, as I said. But also, I can see myself there in that kitchen, and <laughs> your mother, uh, Claire, taking the chair from under that uh, that unfortunate man. Your free travel card can be used on all Expressway coach services, despite restrictions. We're staying on the road, whether you need to attend a medical appointment or for any other essential journey. Remember to travel with Expressway. Expressway Keeping
0: Ireland connected Here's your chance to win a new Doro 7030 feature phone with access to WhatsApp and Facebook designed specifically for seniors and available to buy in Vodafone stores or online Doro are market leaders in creating phones with clearer sound and larger text one that's protected if it falls or can alert others if you do and makes staying in touch with family and friends simple and enjoyable. At Doro, they are dedicated to helping seniors live a better life without compromise. Doro, help to make ageing an independent, secure and rich part of life. As you know, age is just a number. All you need to do to win a newly launched Doro 7030 handset is go to the website www.seniortimes.ie and follow the instructions. To see the full range of Doro phones, visit www.doro.com. The lucky winner will be announced on the Senior Times Facebook page. Doro phones, making technology easy for all. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not subscribe to Senior Times, the magazine and website for people who don't act their age. Or maybe you have a loved one or a friend who you know would love to read more. You can buy a subscription and have the magazine delivered direct to their door. Say hello to our Premium Plus ePaper Bundle the interactive replica edition of the Irish Independent, Sunday Independent, and The Herald. Every paper, every day, delivered to your tablet, phone, or desktop for less than €3.50 per week. Subscribe at independent.ie. Up close and independent.
2: Tell us a little bit about your parents. Well, my father and mother both left school young. Uh, They're both clever, um, but they belong to that generation that just couldn't afford to... They both came from relatively poor, humble backgrounds. My mother's one of 11 kids. My dad, one of five, born in... My father's from um, uh, North County, where I now live. I live my home looks over at my father's old house. Was that Uh, what brought you back to us, It was, it was indeed. Mm. It was the decision to do what nobody else was doing but to reverse the immigration trend and to go back to Roscommon because I kept remembering my grandparents, particularly my grandmother. My grandmother was gorgeous. Uh, She was a gentle person. She loved poetry. She loved dance. She loved music. She loved flowers. Uh, My father came to Belfast at 14. Uh, He got his first pair of shoes... Uh, the day before he got the train from Carrick and Shannon uh, that would take him north. My grandfather went into town and got him the shoes. He didn't bring my father with him. Uh, like they lived three miles from Carrick and Shannon. If my grandmother was in town two or three times a year, was the height of it. Whereas I lived there, and I could be in—I could be in three times a day. <laughs> oh, I've forgotten this. I'll run in. You know. Um, so um, uh, subsequently, um, he came to Belfast, um, and he lodged initially with his aunt. As did a lot of people. A lot of people who came there were from the country. A lot of Catholic people were from the country, and because I suppose there were—they saw opportunities there that didn't exist back in their home places. And um, that's where my father was there. He then subsequently moved with relatives to Dublin. Um, to both to Milltown and Dunleary, who had a pub and uh, they still have the pub, McKenna's and Dunleary. And um, he moved with them. Um, And then he came back to Belfast because he got offered um, a job as bar manager in a pub in Ardoyne, And uh, when he came back, um, by that time, my mother, who was uh, had started work at 15, in his aunt's hairdressers. Ah. And she was his aunt's apprentice. My father was about six years older than her. And uh, they met up. She um, uh, They started going out together. My mother would have been about 18. Um, and they married when she was 19. My God. Goodness me! And they had me a year later when um, when she was twenty, and that was the first then of her eleven pregnancies. Um, uh, nine of which uh, are she has nine live children. I'm the oldest of those nine. So my mother was born in Derry, a place called the Glen and Mahara. Mm-hmm. Then they moved. He got he got transferred back to Belfast and um my family just made generation after generation made really bad decisions about where to live um mostly through ignorance of the politics innocence and ignorance and they came back the only place they could get uh, a place to afford and to live was a little house in Ardoyne where nobody wanted to live because it had been the place had been mired in sectarian violence um in the previous uh, 10 years before they went to live there and it was notorious. Did the the did the troubles come? The troubles close came. To your door? The, the troubles came later, but they had always, in a sense, been there. There had been a series of pogroms. There had been a series of. Honestly, sectarian, people talk about the trouble starting in 69, but the undercurrent was always there. Um, and the threat was always there. My father was a barman when they got married, and my mother a hairdresser, and they lived in one room um, in someone else's house. Um, and um, that's where I, I was born, when they lived in one room in the heart of Ardoyne, uh, sort of back to back, these little tiny two up to down houses with a laneway up the back of them. And they lived back to back with my grandparents mother. Um, Then they bought their first home. They moved across the road, literally across the road. Now you're talking um, maybe maybe, uh, 150 meters. And now you were into Protestant territory. And they were the first Catholic to live in that street. And again, they bought that house in innocence. It never occurred to them that sectarianism would become, you know, would, would inflict itself upon them. And they were only in the house five minutes when uh, some neighbours stuck um, uh, red, white and blue bunting up in the front of the house and a flag, a uh, Union Jack. And that's when, again, we began to understand, or my parents helped us to understand, the differentiation in peoples. Uh, our next door neighbours on all sides were Protestants. Those neighbours came to my father and said, we had nothing to do with that. And we're very sorry. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because my father, of course, took it down. And then it went back up again. And he took it down again. And it never went back up again. But the threat, if you like, was there. But our neighbours were anxious to let us know. And that was most of the neighbours were anxious to let us know they had nothing to do with that. Well, that's support, isn't it? So it was. And in fact, the neighbours on our right side, the Watsons, uh, who had children, a son exactly the same age as me, he and I went to Queen's together. He did medicine, I did law. We were great mates, Robin and I, uh, growing up. And um, so they were our pals. And we went on holidays together. We rented a house together in Newcastle. We shared the house. These were lifelong friends
1: The way you describe the the circumstances in which you grew up, um, it really does uh, show enormous determination and encouragement from your parents to actually end up
2: in Queen's studying law. My parents came from a generation that thought education was desperately important and a way out. They could see in Northern Ireland, Mm -hmm. you know, where Catholics weren't getting a a, a fair chance or a fair go, to use the Australian expression, that education was going to be the way out. Now, they didn't say to us, as some parents did, you know, some one of you has to be a doctor, some one of you has to be a lawyer. They didn't do that. They They just made sure we got the best education. So, we went to the Christian Brothers and the Mercy Nuns, and God knows they as they would say in Belfast, they bet the education <laughs> into us. And um, and into the universities we went and the Dominican nuns, of course, who didn't beat anybody. I was so relieved mm. when I got to the second level uh, to the Dominican convent on the Falls Road and discovered, to my shock and horror, they didn't have rulers. They didn't slap anybody. Now, they were sarcastic as hell, but but uh, but they were different the, you know, the order of preachers were great mm-hmm. teachers, mm-hmm. and uh, so they helped us to get into the professions. And um, my on the day that I got my A level results, I decided, off my own bat, I wanted to be a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And. Um, I don't know where that came from. I think it probably was Perry Mason on the television <laughs> myself. Um and, prob- and also Dan O'Connell. I'm pretty sure it had something to do with Dan O'Connell. Um, but it's so far back, I, I'm not terribly sure. Anyway, that's what I decided. And... Um, I also kind of felt law has answers, you know, or the possibility of answers. And so um, anyway, I formed this view. I applied for law school. I got into law school. And on the day that I got my A-level results, on that day, I knew I was getting into law school. Why? Because I got the results that I needed. I'd been made what's called an offer, a conditional offer from Queen's. I had now met the conditions I was going to get in. So there was... Um, oh, there was delight in the house. Oh, really, well, my parents were just over the moon, and to celebrate, they took all of us, all nine of us then, to our little restaurant in town for a meal. We had never done that as all nine of us before, and I can still see the waitress coming with um, the the, uh, the menus in a in a red, dark red plastic folder, and handing it to my father for him to order for all of us. And then something happened. My father opened it and then he handed it to me. And I looked at it, I remember thinking, what's he doing that for? And somehow I realized in that moment that my parents felt that now that I was going to be a university type person, that I had moved into some other stratosphere that sort of almost separated me from them. Um, And I'd I almost burst into tears at that realisation, but it was also a realisation of how much it meant to them.
1: My goodness, what must they have thought when you went on to become a professor and to teach in Trinity to uh, become president of of Ireland? What was that like for them? Probably something like delirium.
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I suspect. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, though they, you know, they were obviously very, very proud um, and um, delighted. I mean, and kind of bemused. And um, I think the great thing about growing up in, um, probably in a Catholic household, is the belief in miracles. You know, <laughs> and uh, and in the and in God's mysterious ways. Uh, my mother's a great one for novenas. I mean, she's still doing the novena that she did when I was before I was born she started the Novena to the Mother of Perpetual Sucker and she's still doing it, you know, 60, 69 years later. <laughs> and, um, and, I, and with the result that I was born on the Feast of the Mother of Perpetual Soccer, I kid you not, I mean, I was was a fortnight late, but I was actually born on that day. So as far as she was concerned, our blessed lady had a hold and a grip on me from, you know, from day one. And so in a way, my mother kind of was saying, yeah, I was not really surprised by any of that really, you know, (laughs) but uh, because she's prayed all her life, you know, um, for, you know, for God to take care of us through some pretty hairy times um, and managed to keep us all from, you know, from being Mm. murdered in our beds, which was always a... A real possibility. So, um, you know, they were, my parents were, kind of had a, had a, they they were desperately happy about it, of course, but also very worried, because this brought me into, into. Arenas when you know that uh, that they knew nothing about, and um, where they and and also into arenas where possibly there mightn't be that many women, there mightn't be that many Catholics. Um, going back to the days as a as a lecturer in a university, uh, going to work in Trinity College, uh, which to them was that other place. And <laughs> um, so, uh, but so. Um, but you know what? They kind of rolled with it all. In a sense, they they just trusted—not necessarily in me, though they did have always great trust and faith in me. Um, didn't always agree with me, uh, but had great trust and faith in me. And um, but they also had great trust and faith in God. That mm. was their
1: view. You know, well, you know, we'll say our prayers and hope for the best. Yeah, I, I I just imagine, as you say that, that they were kind of rooted in their in their own common sense and in their faith uh, in. In you, as you say, and also uh, in their, their spiritual
2: faith. That's it. That's it. I mean, they never, they never offered me any advice when I, you know, when I went to work um, or when I became president. It wasn't the case of taking me aside and saying, "I make sure you do this or do it that way." Never. Mm-hmm. It was just there was a complete trust there uh, that um, that I would do it right, or if I made a complete mess of it, that somehow God would get me out of it, <laughs> and the, the novenas of the mother of perpetual sucker, would get me out of it. Um, my mother sent me um uh, she was written through old handbags and she came across the original of the species the 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 text of the novena that she was saying uh, 70 years ago um in the 9 months leading up to my birth and she sent it to me um i think there was a subtext which said you, you might consider saying it yourself you know <laughs>
1: Well, you do have um you know a, a great connection with prayer don't you i do yes well, I, I i'm a prayer Um, a meditator, have been for donkey's
2: years. Yeah, there are those who can persuade politically, you know, like the great genius that John Hume was, for example. And I think in back of that of people like the nuns in Ennis, for example, the poor Clare nuns in Ennis, um, you know, who quietly engage in contemplative prayer. And I think of all the people in Northern Ireland, Protestant, Catholic, um, who the quiet people who despaired of all that was going on around them and who uh, felt that the only power they had was the power of quiet prayer. And I often think to myself, you know, we, we don't know what we owe those people. How much worse could it have been without their prayers? And also, when it, when it eventually came to, um, when it eventually came to the Good Friday Agreement and all of that, um, uh, I think those people came into their own, you know? Mm. Um, people of quiet faith um, came into their own.
1: Mary, the, the spiritual dimension to your life is very deep and very rich. Um, so how does it feel to be, if you like, in a situation where your your church, your Catholic church, um, falls short of the mark with regard to so many issues? It feels
2: very disappointing because I grew up, of course, during the, um, um, I grew into teenage during the era of the Second Vatican Council, which promised so much. It was to be the great reform movement. The church was to be updated, uh,
1: brought into the modern world. So do you make a huge distinction between spirituality and uh, right and wrong and uh, social justice and kind of priestliness and priesthood and I do I mean institution but I'll say this to you uh, uh, we're not long after you
2: know it's not that long ago since John Hume died if I was to look at the most pastoral person that I've ever experienced in my life I probably would point to John Hume I think John Hume was as priestly and as pastoral and importantly, so, as he probably even more so than he was a politician. Uh, and maybe that's why, um, even among his own politician and political friends, he wasn't really understood because he had that strong pastoral, spiritual side, which encouraged us to draw from ourselves the capacity to change in such a way as to soften our hearts towards the otherness of other, that allowed this thing that we call love. Um, and forgiveness and compassion to flood our lives and through that to change our lives politically. Mm-hmm. And so I regard him as the great pastor, the great prophet of our times. What holds me in the church is a determination that a church that is so influential in the world, which it is, insofar as their teaching um contradicts the idea of a loving God, excludes women, excludes LGBTI, and in particular forces young LGBTI people into the most awful, tragic personal circumstances of feeling lost and alone and and oppressed uh, in this church. Um, I just want to be able to do what I can, uh, while I can, and have breath, to be able to nudge it towards a difference. And honestly, I think that there is a momentum growing now Um, I feel um, the wheels of a momentum growing. I'm not saying that it is now, you know, in first gear um, (laughs) or anywhere near first gear, but certainly there is a building up of momentum. Um, The church of the future, the Catholic church of the future, if it fails to address these issues, if they fail to uh, honour the full equality and equal dignity of women, if they fail to honour the full equality and equal dignity of of LGBTI people, it's going to be lost. It will be lost probably in the next generation.
1: Mary, you speak with enormous passion about uh, spirituality and the position of the church and the teachings of the church and uh, human rights and social justice. And you brought all of those commitments, if you like, to your presidency, which was themed around building bridges, and it seems as if that's always been part of your life. During the presidency, um,
2: I knew when I ran for the presidency, one of the reasons why I wanted to run and why I wanted to win and why I would really wanted to, the, the opportunity um, was, to, was to bring that understanding, um, that place that God had placed me in, um, to, um, to, to bring that, the, the, the urgent need to build bridges of um, respectful dialogue with each other. And more than respectful dialogue, I think um, probably radical befriending. And that's what we decided to do, that uh, building bridges would not just involve, you know, talking to nice people about nice things, um, talking to people whom it was easy to talk to, but rather it would mean going to the places where people were saying very, quite, quite strongly, over my dead body, will I stand in Arras and Oogdron. Over my dead body, will I trust the south of Ireland? Um, over my dead body, will I have anything to do with um, the other? And so we, for me, building bridges was always, even though it's a, you know, it's a, it's a common expression, but it, it encapsulated something quite radical. It also encapsulated my own really quite... Um, on you know, on giving view of the great commandment to love one another, that it is capable of working, and I believe it did over those fourteen years.
1: Your husband Martin was uh, a wonderful support in those fourteen years, building bridges without and, a doubt. You know, he was just always there
2: with you and for you. Well, I have often thought uh, the great, my great priest mentor friend, Father Justin Coyne, died, uh, uh, and the fact uh, that just. Um, after I did my A-levels in 1969. Gentle, quiet man um, who was so encouraging to me as a young person and always asking you, what do you think? What's your view on this? Great metaphysician, um, great man to encourage children. But I often think um, that he died um, just five days before I had my first encounter with, uh, my first sort of, not even a date with, but I met Martin McAleese. And um, at a party in my own house, it was my own birthday party and I'd invited a number of people and I was sorely tempted and uh, uh, to abandon the party because Father Justin was such a good friend of mine, such a great mentor. His death that week had really, uh, I felt so lost. But my mother, it was, we didn't have phones in those days, you know, and yet you had asked people to come so there was no way of getting in contact with them not to come. Um, and so... Uh, I, my mum said, no, go ahead and have it. That's what Justin would have wanted. And that was the night that, um, that Martin McAleese made his first date with me.
1: Whoa. And was and it love at first sight, Mary?
2: Pardon? Was it love at first sight? No. Um, <laughs> he would say it was for him. And, um, and he insists that it was for me too. No, he, it, you know, maybe second or third sight. <laughs> but uh, hmm. certainly I knew that he was going to be an important person in my life. That was the
1: start of it. And, and what and was it about him that attracted you?
2: Um, well, that's a good question. Um, in those days, it was probably rather trite. He was very handsome and he was the you know, captain of the football team and things like that. Um, and he seemed so sure of himself. Um, as I got to know him um, over the years, um, I just become more and more impressed with his fidelity. Um, his un, just unrelenting fidelity to me as a person. Mm. And support. Um, and his goodness he's um, he you know he's he 's not in any sense deeply political um he 's very pastoral uh, and he grew up in a he grew up in a protestant um, um, east Belfast um surrounded by loyalism they also lost their home you know loyalists came in and took the Sacred Heart picture off the wall and trampled it. And, you know, his mother died a relatively short time after that. And I'm pretty sure that there's a direct correlation between the stress of all that and her death. Um, And so he had all that. And yet he went, and I'll tell you what really attracted me eventually to him. We were seven years going up and up and down and in and out of relationships uh, before we got married. We both discovered that Dan O'Connell was a big inspiration to us. And by the time we got married, he was working for Arlingus. He was then an accountant and um, uh, he had gone through KPMG and was now an accountant uh, with um, uh, Arlingas and um, or an Arlingas subsidiary. And we could have probably gone to anywhere Arlingas went. We probably could have gone quite cheaply to, But no, we'd have to go to Kerry on our honeymoon in March, early March. <laughs> what were we thinking? And we went to see the Lakes of Killarney, never saw them. Like it was the a list, hotel was there? had a view, I'm told from the brochures, had a view over the lakes of Killarney, never saw them. There's a fog hung over it the entire time. <laughs> and so we never saw the lakes of Killarney. But um, why did we go to Killarney? Because on the day one of our honeymoon, we spent Derry 9 at his home. Oh. And we had written ahead... Uh, we weren't sure, was it open? Could you go? And a very nice lady who was some relation of his wrote back to us and said, by all means call. And we spent a good half day or more there with her and she had tea for us. And all the tour buses were flying past, you know, on the Ring of Kerry going past the blinking place. And here was this, we couldn't believe that, that we had this place, this wonderful place. We were immersed in him. And for both of us, it was about Here we are getting married. We're probably going to have a family. We've thought then we're probably going to live in Northern Ireland for the rest of our lives. We both lost our homes because of paramilitary violence. We both had disavowed violence as a way of solving any darn thing. And so we were pledging ourselves to O'Connell's way, his vision of Mm -hmm. dialogue and human rights. And um, so that was our, we were setting out on our life journey together and we were making a statement. So, A pilgrimage, really. It was like a
1: pilgrimage, wasn't it? It was
2: very much so. And um, so I think that was what attracted me, you know, and that grew in both of us over the years and the ways in which we were tested over the years um, so that, but then, you see, when we came into the RS that Martin came into his own because, well, first of all, he gave up his work. He was by now a dentist. And so, you know, unpaid for the next 14 years, he dedicated himself to building bridges. He sat on the phone. He went into loyalist areas. And the great thing was, in those loyalist areas, he wasn't some fella you could pull the wool over the eyes of from Dublin. He was a fella from up the road, you know, who had lived the, had lived the life. He knew the ter- terrain and... Um, and he went into those places, you know, where people were walking around with Armalites under their shoulders or over their shoulders. And very quickly, a number of the key figures in loyalism came to become great friends of his, um, who had such, re- and still to this day, have great respect for him. And visited the Oris. Came to us. And um, were hosted in yeah, the Oris. Yeah, and, and we had a kind of, our view was, they come, we're never going to take photographs. This is. Uh, we were all very sceptical of the, you know, the spin photograph or the, you know, here's my, pet Protestant, or here's my pet Catholic, or here's my pet loyalist. We wanted it to be quiet and and uh, not pressurizing. We wanted them to come and feel that, feel that they could be loved by us, um, that they could be um, treated as honored guests. So what we were about the business of was trying to say, could we at least try to be good neighbors? That's all we want good neighbours. We share this island. We're always going to be neighbours. Let's have a cup of tea, sit down, tell me about your kids. We didn't talk politics at all initially. Mm-hmm. Eventually we got around to it, but the idea was that we would bring people to the Arras for the cup of tea and the bun or the lunch and the dinner who over their dead bodies would come and, and, and they wouldn't just come once. Because it was about good neighbours, we had to build friendships. So they would come again and again and again. If we were authentic and true and if, and also if, when they came, they had a good experience, you know, they got nice tea and scones, but also if we treated them with uh, the human dignity they were entitled to um, and we weren't fearful of them because uh, we'd grown up with them. So we weren't fearful of them and we weren't suspicious. I think if we, I felt if we did all that, it's only a million and a half people in Northern Ireland. I felt that the word would get out that we were serious of purpose and we could all be good neighbors. Here's your chance
0: to win a new Doro 7030 feature phone with access to WhatsApp and Facebook, designed specifically for seniors and available to buy in Vodafone stores or online. Doro are market leaders in creating phones with clearer sound and larger text, one that's protected if it falls or can alert others if you do, and makes staying in touch with family and friends simple and enjoyable. At Doro, they are dedicated to helping seniors live a better life without compromise. Doro help to make ageing an independent, secure and rich part of life. As you know, age is just a number. All you need to do to win a newly launched Doro 7030 handset is go to the website www.seniortimes.ie and follow the instructions. To see the full range of Doro phones, visit www.doro.com. The lucky winner will be announced on the Senior Times Facebook page. Doro phones,
1: making technology easy for all. Your free travel card can be used on all Expressway coach services. Despite restrictions, we're staying on the road. Whether you need to attend a medical appointment or for any other essential journey, remember to travel with Expressway expressway keeping ireland connected
0: say hello to independent weekend home delivery save up to 40 percent with the irish independent and sunday independent delivered to your door every weekend plus enjoy premium access to independent.ie and read our interactive e-paper edition all week long all from just five euro per week search for independent home delivery now
1: Listening to you talk in that vein, and then for you to be president when Queen Elizabeth came to uh, to Ireland and to Aros Nocturne, um, that must have been a momentous occasion for for you, given the work that you had done building those bridges. She said to me that one of the greatest sadnesses
2: of her life was that she had been unable to visit the Republic. Um, And her husband, of course, had visited the Republic during the war. He'd come into the port of Derry and had, I think he had actually gone across the border. So he had been there. And she said to me, you know, I've had 25 horses or something, you know, run in various stables in Ireland. I've never been able to see them. But she said, it's not just about the horses. Um, She said, I have a great love of Ireland and Irish history. And I was stunned, and I mean it, stunned by... Um, the the breadth and depth of her knowledge of Irish history and her genuine desire to be a force for reconciliation. I knew that she was coming on what I'll call, you mentioned the word pilgrimage. She was coming on a pilgrimage of reconciliation. She's a deeply prayerful woman. She's a deeply Christian woman. Um, uh, not in a piocious sense at all, but in that lovely broad way of wanting to do good, wanting to do the right thing. So that when she came here, that's what she wanted to do. Something that she believed was sitting, waiting there to be done the right thing. And she did it. And over those four days, I think uh, the country was transformed. Our relationship with Great Britain and indeed with her was um, utterly transformed. Um, I loved at the end of it, I got a letter from an old um, lady in her 90s, who an old republican and i start when i read the letter i mean i got we got she and i both got literally thousands of letters as a result of that visit she got far more letters for that visit than any other state visit she made anywhere and she would say herself and did say that it was the most important state visit of her of her entire career and one that she enjoyed most but Um, I got this letter and I sent it to her. This old lady said, I've no time. I'm an old republic and I've no time for monarchs. And in particular, I've no time for the monarch next door. And I thought, oh, here we go. Um, I'm going to be absolutely, you know, lacerated here. And then she said, I watched her arrive at Casement Aerodrome. Uh, I said, I'll give it five minutes. I'll watch it for five minutes. And she said, I watched it for four days and I cried. And she said something washed out of her. Some anger something washed out of her to be replaced by something entirely other and healthier and nicer. And she said that when the Queen took off, when the Queen's flight took off from Cork, she said to herself, this visit was choreographed by the angels. And I thought, well, that's the best summation of it I could have found. You know, in a sense, it was a metaphysical kind of change, wasn't there? Mm -hmm. There was goodness, there was grace, there was affection, real affection, real love, um... The, the only other time that I can remember, there are two, two or three times in Ireland when I felt that grace flooding the country. One was the day of the Good Friday Agreement in 1998 when we had the referendum and realised the yesness in people's hearts. A great grace flooded us because now we had real hope in the future, a shared future. We believed in each other. We were all partners in the future. It was brilliant. The second one was Croke Park, the... the um. World Summer Games, Special Special Olympics. Oh boy! Oh yeah! Tell us about that. A lot of grace. Forty thousand volunteers all around the country, raising sixty million euro, and every wee hole in the wall in Ireland, hosting um, uh, athletes from all over the world, and the 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 joy, pure joy, and uh, and and then the Queen's visit was another day of flooded the country with grace. And the next time that I felt that was the day after the same sex marriage referendum, Um, and. That's what I'm. Uh, grace for me is really the flood of joy
1: of people doing the right thing. And you had the joy then of uh, your son, Justin. Being married, That's just Justin right. being gay. And, and I mean, Justin grew up, grew up, thank God
2: he grew up in a house where he never heard, as so many young people do, um, homophobic comments, it, no matter how throwaway, no matter how deliberate. He always was in a house where there were gay people in and out. We were always, you know, licking envelopes for the next campaign. Um, um, he was, and his father, in, my father-in-law, Charlie, God rest his soul, he was kind of perplexed by all this stuff, you know. Even Martin originally was a bit perplexed by it, you know. I do remember going to, a house of friends of ours, the first gay couple I knew to set up home together, and um, they'd invited us to the house uh, to, the, to the housewarming, and I was kind of semi afraid to tell Martin <laughs> that we were going to the housewarming of these. Gay- he knew they were gay friends, they were good pals of ours. They were in and out of our house all the time, but now they were actually making the statement of having open, you know, having a home together. And we were going, and I was sitting in the car, you know, driving up past the bull island with the yucca plant in the car (laughs) and thinking, oh God, I think maybe I should tell him. Because what I'd said to him was, do you see after the Ardesh? there's this party which was actually true, but the party had nothing to do with the Ardash. And um, so I told him and he hit the brakes of the car. I thought we'd end up over the wall on the Bull Island. And he said to me, Mary, if anything on is going on here, he said, like, we're both out of here. Um, and then we went and it was the mammies and the grannies and the aunties. And they were all trying to come to terms with this new world, this new realisation. And what they said to Martin, one of the grannies sat beside Martin and she said, well, I've known him, meaning her grandson, since he was born. And I know he's a very, very good person. And I don't understand this, but if he says that this is who he is, then this is who he is. And I know that these two people are good people and Mm -hmm. they deserve each other. So that was it. And that Martin was converted on that day. You know, because Martin had grown grown up in the footballing environment, in the GAA football environment. And I have to say, last year, when the GAA joined Gay Pride, Oh, my heart just lifted. And to see my little then three-year-old grandson, you know, with his with his um, uh, rainbow sunglasses and his rainbow T-shirt and his rainbow flag at the head of that march from Croke Park. Yeah, I was so proud. Would you read us another little bit? Well, this is from the first book I ever wrote. You had another piece from it. This is from the first book I ever wrote back in 1997 called Reconciled Being, really about... Um, about reconciliation in a country that badly needed it. It says, Let me describe the pincer movement in which the warp and weft of my own life came to be shaped, some might say distorted, by growing up in a world where to be a woman and a Catholic was to some extent at least to be doubly excluded and marginalised, if not doubly deviant. I was born in Belfast, between the Passionist Monastery and the Orange Hall.
1: So what do you hope now, Mary, for this island that we we share um, going forward? The uh,
2: Good Friday Agreement um, never foresaw Brexit and did not have built into it a mechanism for dealing with such a phenomenon. So it hasn't been tested, hasn't been road tested against Brexit, nor has it been road tested against a referendum on partition. Now, the vast majority of people signed up to the idea of that referendum, but there are people who didn't. There are small constituencies which didn't and um, would still have a gras, let's say, for the old violence, possibly. And we have to ensure that in this meantime that we work to create the stable, um, shared a sense of a um, shared good neighbourliness that will allow us to approach both Brexit and its consequences and the possibility of a referendum and its consequences without destabilising, without the pull of old
1: sectarian pathways. Very well said. And Mary, thank you so much for coming in and for giving such insight and such... Um, such knowledge and uh, I suppose empathy into the way we live our lives and the people that we share this island with. So Gramila Margots. No, Hubert Kid Fulcherot. Lovely to be able to do it. Thanks for asking me. Wow, that was an amazing hour spent in very good company. Mary Macalise has always been a woman of substance, intellectually way ahead of so many, but she's also a wonderful raconteur, funny, engaging, and she loves people. For me, it was enlightening and very satisfying to chat with her and I cannot wait now to read her memoir. Here's the story. This Senior Times podcast was produced by Simon Murta and engineered by Mark Murphy.